I was just sitting here wondering how many of you were glad you didn't have to watch your breath for this hour. <laughs> Especially on the first day of a retreat. Sometimes on the first or second day of a retreat, we will talk about what's called the hindrances or the five difficult mind states. And we talk about these because these are the primary mind states that arise on a first and second day of a retreat. And those five difficult mind states that are called hindrances, traditionally, because they hinder clarity and clear seeing, are our grasping or wanting, aversion or not wanting, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. So my sense is that that probably describes a lot of your experience today. <laughs> the wanting and the not wanting, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. Doubt about what you're actually doing here. But I'm not going to give a talk on that tonight. <laughs> but I am going to point to the first two, the wanting and the not wanting, because it's a theme, well, in some ways it's the essence of the teachings of the Buddha, how this wanting and conversely not wanting blocks or interferes with connection to our true being. There was a great woman saint who lived in this past century, the 20th century. She died in the 1970s, and her name was Ananda Mayama. And I didn't have an opportunity to meet her, but when I read things that she said, they touch me very deeply. And one of the things that I read that she said inspired some of this talk tonight. And she said, there are two currents running through. She said, the first current is the current of the world, where want follows upon more want. And this can never lead to fulfillment. This is the current of the world. And there's another current that runs through. And this is the current of one's true being. And she said, this current is what establishes one in completion. She says, if one endeavors to fulfill oneself by entering this current, it will lead one to the perfect poise of one's true being. I want to explore this a little bit tonight, what this is. This, when, when Anandamaya Ma is talking about our true being or the current of our true being, Today, your experience may have been more closely to the current of wanting, or the current of what she calls the world. We just want one thing after the next. Want this experience or that experience, or you don't want this or you don't want that, and there's this movement or this sometimes this struggle going back and forth, back and forth in the mind between what I want and what I don't want. And perhaps you've seen this maybe even somewhat clearly in your own mind. And we call this insight meditation, and that could be one of the first insights that many people have, just how relentless 
that motion, that movement in the mind is of wanting, wanting something other than what I have. But sometimes, and for many actually, we can feel the current of our true being running through. Something might happen. We might be walking outside or looking at the hills or the wind in the coolness may touch our cheek in a certain way. And then the mind just releases and we feel a deep connection with ourselves, with others, with life, maybe just for a few moments or maybe just momentarily. And there's really not so much of me in it. There's just a connection or a fullness of that experience in that moment. But it seems that these experiences can be somewhat elusive, but because we've tasted them, it creates some kind of longing for more. We want more. And we find ourselves tossed back into the world of wanting, just recklessly, heedlessly, and maddeningly. You know, like there's nothing we can do about it. The mind just starts to move again. And we find ourselves wanting and demanding, not liking, and caught up in this again. This movement of wanting, not wanting, demanding, controlling, manipulating, this is the rising of self when I get in the way of my experience, when the self gets strong, when it gets solidified, and it in some ways blocks our connection with the fullness of our experience. This current of our true being, we can call it by different names. We might even call it Dharma or the stream of Dharma, when we really feel that we're in the center of things. There's not so much separation or conflict. Or we may call it spirit, you know, just this, the connection with the spirit. Or we may call that which is sacred, connecting with something sacred or holy, whatever word we might want to put on that. But where is it? <laughs> where is it? Where do we find it? How do we get it? It seems that the heart is longing for it, but <laughs> where is it? Can we grasp it? Can we possess it? Can we call it our own? You know, it's as if we want to find it so that we can have it and say, yes, <laughs> now I have it. Now I know what this is about. Now I know what the teachings are pointing to. Some kind of way that then again we can build up our identity around that experience and then somehow own it as another possession. And in doing that, it's not it. We've lost it once again because there's the wanting or the not wanting, the holding on, the grasping, which is the solidification of I. This current of the world or wanting is so present. And we're told ever since we're very small that this, the world is where we're going to find our fulfillment. You know, all the, I mean, even now we can see how, how how many messages we are impacted by every day that's saying that if you have this, 
this is where you're going to get your fulfillment. No. This is the message that we hear again and again. And our conditioning from the time we're, so s we're small is so strong that we look outward, we look to other to find that fulfillment. And if we can get things in a certain way, at some point we will find that lasting happiness. Powerful messages are coming to us, and particularly now with Buddhism making an impact in the mainstream. And I've been out of the country for quite some time. I, I've been making trips back and forth, but I haven't been living in this country for about 13 years. And I've just come back in the last few months and trying to establish my life in this culture again. And I'm noticing how many images there are of Buddhas <laughs> and how many slogans there are of of meditation and peace of mind and nirvana. You know, if you use this moisturizing cream, you're going to enter into nirvana. And if you shampoo your hair with this, this is going to bring you peace of mind. Um, I, d I don't know. <laughs> it's very much, the media has very much taken up this kind of message that this is again where you're going to find this kind of lasting fulfillment, which is what nirvana is in the classical language. It is the end of that wanting, the end of that movement. And I don't think we're going to find it through the moisturizing cream, particularly if it's about $20 a bottle. <laughs> but we are told that we can have anything we want if we can pay for it if we have the money for it. You know, so then it builds up all the conditioning of trying to get more and find, find more strategic ways to make money so we can have more. I mean, you know, this is what most of the world is caught up in. And I've spent so much time in India over the last 12, 13 years. I've been going there every winter, nearly every winter, to teach um, retreats in Bodhgaya, where the Buddha was enlightened with Christopher Titmus. And I can see over the years how this message, now that there's more televisions and the American uh, uh, con machine, consumer machine, has now entered in India, and how that the whole I mindset is changing even there for wanting more, wanting what the Americans have, because that's what's really going to make them happy. It's very, very sad to see. One of the things that I've noticed in the last few months of being here is that now you can buy a computer in about 10 different colors, <laughs> about the same, the same way that you can uh, choose ice cream. You know, all these different flavors. You can get, you know, purple and, and blue and red and pink and, you know, your flavor of your computer. You know, it's very interesting to kind of shift out of that for a few moments and see it from a very different perspective. How the, 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 the profit-making culture wants us to want those things and want more choices. I, I had an interesting experience just in the last few months when I was in India. I had the chance to be in the south of India with a friend who took me to uh, an Indian family's home. 
And even though I've been in India a lot, I haven't had a chance to be in the traditional culture of the Indians because I've been with Westerners a lot and a tourist there in, in many ways and spending time with teachers, but not so much in Indian homes. And we spent about three or four nights in this one woman's home who is a doctor. And she had a very nice home and uh, you know, just a very modest home, but even though she's a doctor, uh, on a street with some other doctors. But it, we needed to go out and buy a few things at the, at the corner shop. And so I went out with them, and, and on every corner was just a little cubby hole in, the, in, in, in a little cement block. And there was a person behind it, and this little shop had everything one could possibly need. Just a tiny little shop. It had soap, laundry soap, and some, some fruits and vegetables, not many fruits, and little cookies, and um, toothpaste, and you know, all the very basic things. But when one goes to the shop, there's somebody standing behind that you tell them what you want, and then they get it for you. But what my friend told me, who spent a lot of time in India, which I hadn't really realized at the shop. You know, I still see it through my Western eyes and think, oh, how cute, you know, how quaint. But what she pointed out to me is that there really isn't much choice. There's not 10 flavors of, 10 kinds of toothpaste or 10 kinds of laundry detergent. There's laundry detergent, <laughs> and there's toothpaste, and there's potatoes, and some biscuits, maybe three or four different kinds. There's not much choice. And so when one goes to the shop, they just get what they need. And it was so interesting to kind of wake up to, from that, from that particular place, how far we've come <laughs> and how much we've generated in our culture of want and, and need and choice. You know, when actually, <laughs> it's really so fabricated. It's so fabricated. There's not a lot that we actually need. And then coming back here, coming back and being in the culture more, and seeing these superstores now. And I was in Canada a few months ago uh, and, and in this place called Regina in Saskatchewan. And it's in the prairie, so there's actually a lot of space. And so the city is starting to expand out into the prairie, and they're building, they're developing more things. And because there's so much land, I think they built one of the biggest superstores I have ever seen because they had the land. And I had just come from India and had this experience. And it just, just to get a sense of what's in that store, <laughs> what's in that store? It is so big. Just even driving by, I didn't, I didn't go in. I don't think I could have handled it at the time. But just that sense of what do we actually need? And how much of our conditioning is what we've been impacted by, influenced by, told that this is really what's going to bring our happiness? I've been reading Buddhist texts more. I've been reading some of the original teachings of the Buddha. 
And I came across one of the most powerful sayings of the Buddha that I've actually heard. And it's something that's staying with me a lot, and I use it a lot to contemplate in my practice. And the Buddha said, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders on, that will become the inclination of their mind. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders on, that will become the inclination of their mind. Because the mind is so pliable. Our mind is actually so flexible, and that's why transformation is possible, because the mind is really quite fluid. It's not fixed. It's not solid. There's lots of possibility to, to work with the mind. And so by, by whatever we incline the mind towards, that's what, you, that's what we keep reinforcing. That's what we keep building and solidifying. So if the mind keeps leaning to wanting something other than what we have or being somewhere other than where we are, then we keep feeding that particular condition of mind. And we find ourselves continually toppling forward <laughs> into other experiences besides the one that we're actually having and feeling the dissatisfaction, feeling the discomfort, feeling the tension of not resting where we are, not being able to come into a place of wholeness because we have the assumption that this isn't enough. This isn't good enough. And we, how we mentioned last night that one of our teachers said that we've been doing this for 35 million years, or was it 34 million years? I'm not sure. <laughs> What, what's the matter, a million here or there? <laughs> 35 million. <laughs> and the power of that conditioning is really what we're sitting with, is what, we're free, what, we're, what we feel the tension from. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a way out, because the mind is so flexible, the mind is so workable. So we have these teachings, we have this practice, we have ways of circumventing the power of that movement so that we may actually be able to rest back in to our true being, to that current of our true being. The teachings really help us understand why we have the sense that we're not flowing in the current of our true being. The teachings point to these so-called hindrances, what's blocking that recognition, blocking that, that knowing of our true being. And so through the practice, through the watching, through the, through the paying attention, we may be able to see how we get pulled out, what actually pulls us up, <laughs> kind of pulls us up and out of the present moment, of resting, of resting and resting back, settling back into the ease of our being. This is where the, the sense of self or I or me grows and feels so strong and, and seems like it's 
causing so much havoc in our life by these demands of what I want, of what I want, Mm -hmm. whether it's material, whether it's emotional, whether it's mental or physical, whatever level we may be experiencing that wanting towards, this is what's going to keep solidifying that sense of self, or in the psychological language, ego. This ego. Creates this sense of the world centered around me. I'm in the middle and everything radiates out around me. That's the perspective that we seem to have. But the I want can't really exist without, without the I don't want. They play together. So for some people, the I want might be stronger. And for others, the I don't want might seem stronger. So for me, it's I don't want. <laughs> it's more of that, that negativity or the aversion that I experience. Not so much of the greed or the lusting after. But they still play together. Mm-hmm. I don't want. And when I see something that I don't want, this can give rise to anger, anywhere from mild irritation, you know, just kind of a mild irritation that we can sense as we go through the day because we don't like life or the way things are happening, or all the way to rage at something that's happening in the moment. And not to say that sometimes anger and rage isn't an appropriate response to some of the things that we experience these days. So sometimes that might flow through us, and it's an expression and a release, and then it passes by. It was kind of a letting go that happens through that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I don't want can give rise to disappointment. We just feel that disappointment towards life. And sometimes that can fall into self-pity. It's just happening to me. Everybody else has it good, or it's it's better for everybody else, but not for me. And that heaviness of the self-pity, which I have known in myself for a very long time. Or it can just be general negativity. You know, just that lens or that filter of looking out at life, and there's just nothing that looks very good. You know, just everything looks pretty grim and, and, and glum. And this can give rise to complaining and judging, comparing. And it can often lead us, lead us, leave us in a pretty bad mood. Feel the mood. But again, we're not stuck with this. We're not stuck with this because there is possibility for transformation. There is something else running through us. It's not as if we have to be different people and then find something else that isn't already here, but rather to access that which is already here, but somehow understand and and begin to remove the filters over consciousness that are blocking the view, the view of what's available for us. The first day of a retreat, 
we can often feel this, as I was saying, you know, this wanting, not wanting, because we can't really feed our habits here. You know, it's almost like we're going through some kind of withdrawal. (laughs) We can't just act out. I mean, we may find ways to do that here. I don't know. A lot of things happen that we don't know about. But (laughs) 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 But generally, we go through kind of withdrawal. I think how we said last night, like a detox, you know, just this, we have to let go. We're forced to let go because we don't have things to grab onto that we usually so easily and habitually find around us for distractions. So we're really left here, and it can be pretty unpleasant for a lot of people. And if you're relatively new, you might be asking yourself, why would I even put myself through this? Why why am I doing this? It's ridiculous. It's so boring. It's so unpleasant. It doesn't feel satisfying at all. I don't, can't stay with my breath for even a moment. I don't really know what they're talking about when they talk about steadiness of mind. You know, you know, I can really wonder what this is about completely. Or even if you've had more experience, if you've been on a number of retreats and you've had fairly easy times in the past, It might be difficult now, and doubt can start to arise. It's like, well, I don't know. I thought it was working for me, but I don't know. Maybe this isn't the right practice for me. Maybe I should be doing some Tibetan practices where, you know, I can do visualizations and deities and chanting and malas and, you know, you start wondering. Why should I deprive myself in this way? I could be having a good time this weekend doing something (laughs) much more enjoyable. But yet I think we have to ask ourselves, what's going to change the habit? What's really going to change the habit? The habit of searching after fulfillment in things outside of myself, or situations outside of myself, or people outside of myself. What's going to bring me into this refuge of my own being at last, finally, (laughs) so I can stop this searching, this seeking, looking in the wrong place? What is going to allow me to discover that which will truly give lasting fulfillment? There's some possibility here for us. There's some possibility to actually see what's happening within our own minds and not follow it, not buy into it, but to continue to stay still, continue to sit and breathe, sit and be with the pain, sit and be with the boredom, (laughs) or go out and walk even though it feels really awkward and mechanical and minds wandering and this doesn't make any sense at all. Why do they call this meditation? Maybe just do it. Do it because we're not getting what we want. (laughs) I mean, do you have a sense how that 
could actually be good for the mind, as long as it doesn't fall into too much deprivation. You know, not, as long as it's not falling into a place where I just feel more and more like I'm deprived and not getting any nourishment. I mean, then there may be something that need to be, needs to be discussed together with a teacher. Because this practice can also be somewhat challenging, quite ascetic, sometimes really a seem very depriving, lack of nourishment. But yet for some of us to keep going through that, there's the possibility of something to show itself something to reveal itself that we may have never seen before because we're not buying into the mind's desires, the mind's wanting that takes us away, that leads us out, that leads us away from ourself, away from our true being. A few years ago, I was in Nepal, and I had the good fortune of being with one of the, one of the last great Tibetan masters, uh, Tuku Ugyen Rinpoche. He was one of the Dzogchen masters in the, in the mystical Tibetan tradition. Howie was there too. And there were a group of us, about 10 of us, who were able to have private meetings with him. And there was one particular incident that really, again, touched me. And some things that happen are very memorable, and they stay with us and and continue to be a teaching over and over and over again. And he, Tuka Ugin, was sitting on a podium, as Tibetan masters do. They sit up. They're elevated on a a beautiful uh, podium in a small room. And on his podium, he had this very, very beautiful, uh, looked like a, 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 a Chinese teacup and saucer. Very elegant, very beautiful. And it looked as though that it was actually a teacup that he was using because um, disciples or students give masters beautiful gifts as offerings to them. And so he was just sitting there. And he was giving teachings on non-attachment and on letting go and renunciation to us. And in giving us, uh, in one point in the teaching, he picked up the teacup and the sa- on the saucer and held it in his hand. And just as he did that, I, I was looking at it and thought, oh, how beautiful. You know, it's just one of those very elegant teacups. And then he said, notice how your mind leans towards wanting the teacup, wanting it for yourself. Mm-hmm. And it was so interesting because it was that kind of a teacup that, of course, you, you just, you see even the body language is like, oh, <laughs> you know, you just kind of move out after it. And the mind just, the mind pulls the whole body towards it to almost go to grasp it. And then he was saying, even that inclination of the mind is reinforcing that attachment, reinforcing the wanting mind, reinforcing the mind that takes us away from a place of peace, a place of fulfillment. And I hadn't actually seen it quite like that because it was so, it just demonstrated the whole thing right there because it happened to be so lovely, 
Notice how I'm going on about it. <laughs> just, <laughs> just holding it up. And then just being able to see my mind move. And then the mind moving the whole body towards the wanting of it. Being able to experience that lifting out of the moment. So in that moment, almost the sense of, I am not complete unless I have that teacup. Unless I can have a teacup just like that for myself, then I'll feel complete. This is really what happens for us again and again and again throughout the day. And that grasping, that grasping or that that wanting, whether it's the wanting or the not wanting, it's the same movement. It's just a different direction. It's still the contraction that happens within the mind, within the body, of, of either grabbing after or pushing away. The tension that happens within the mind and the body. And if we have some clarity of mind, which we can develop through the meditation, through seeing again and again and again, looking back at our own mind, our own experience, we might be able to then begin to notice that, inc- that inclining that inclining towards and away. And in the seeing of it, being able to rest back. And the breath is such a valuable resource for us. I mean, we use the breath here as an anchor in the meditation instructions to help us stay steady in the present moment. But I find more and more as the years go on that the breath is not just a resource to help me rest back in present moment, but to really help me let go of the tension the tension that builds within my mind and body as I want something other or don't want. And the breath out, the releasing, the letting go, and the resting back into my being so that I can come back into connection, back into intimacy with myself where I am already complete, where I am already whole, just as I am without having anything more or anything less. So I wonder for you how many times the mind has moved today, thinking, I'd be better off somewhere else. (laughs) And the real culprit is right before the bell rings. You know, maybe that five minutes or so, You want to be anywhere else but here, waiting for that bell to ring. (laughs) If only that bell would ring. But interesting, you know, because as soon as the bell rings, then there's some sense of relief, just because the bell rang. But, you know, sometimes I'd like to ring the bell when there's still five minutes to go, so that you could have that sense of relief. And then sit for the next five minutes, (laughs) feeling relieved, you know. It's so interesting how the mind sets that up, you know. Like that's going to make such a big difference. Where our mind takes us becomes so believable that this is what's going to make a difference. That what's happening now is the last thing that I want to experience. And so the practice for us that we're pointed to 
is to see if we can return back and be with ourselves, whatever it is, whatever's going on, to return back. We might say that meditation is the art of returning, the art of returning. And all meditation, I think, is the art of returning. Whatever we're doing, whatever technique we're employed in, whether it's visualizations or questioning, inquiry, prayer, mantra, koan, it, all of those techniques ask us to return, to collect the mind, to collect the attention back where we are in present time to keep the mind from being distracted and wandering off in its m- myriad realms that it wants to go in, to focus the mind, to collect the mind, to come back. Meditation really teaches us, or teaches us to discipline our chaotic minds because they, our minds are so out of control, so out of control. This discipline is like steadying a canoe in rough water, learning how to find that steadiness, even when the water is rough. It's not to say that we have to make the waters calm, but we know how to keep our balance, even when the water is rough. We learn to steady our attention on an object, not with anger towards that object or with aversion towards that rough water, in this case, but rather with kindness, with firmness, but with tenderness. And each time we return, each time we're able to come back with a kindness of mind, with a, with a, a, a tenderness in the mind, this cultivates a tender heart. Each time we incline the mind towards kindness towards ourself, tenderness towards what we see, this is also strengthening a tender heart. In the same way that we're bringing about transformation in a wider way, we also strengthen the qualities of the heart itself through that attitude of mind. There was one woman in group today who was talking about her own way of helping herself to let go. And she was using beautiful words, and even as she said them, I could hear how deeply they went for her. She was just saying, she reminds herself just to use the words, let go, surrender, release, release, let go. It's kind of like a soft, reminding oneself not to hold on, just to let go, release, surrender. And she said that she finds it goes deeper and deeper as she continues her practice into more places of ease, ease of being. This is the returning, returning, turning back turning back into the stillness, or maybe the still point, the still point where the mind is not moving away 
but the mind is able to rest in present moment, right where we are, away from the world of wanting to where things are already complete. And this isn't a particular kind of experience that I'm talking about. I'm not saying that when we turn back and feel or rest into this place of stillness in ourselves, that it's a particular kind of experience. Experience often means that it's me and the experience that I'm having. Me and the experience. And so we talk about experience often in relationship to what's happening to me. But when I truly rest back into the place of not wanting, I'm not sure that there is so much of me in that, which means there may not be so much of an experience, but rather just what it is. Just what it is. It's an alignment with what is, whether there's a lot of emotion, whether there's calmness, whether there's seeing beautiful sights or hearing sounds or feeling restless or bored or whatever that is, there's an alignment with what is. There's not the wanting, wanting for it to be different. This is the kind of stillness that the teachings are pointing to. This is why we call it a refuge, because there is a great release in that alignment. And in those moments, I'm not invested in what I have or how I am in the world or what others think of me. That whole this and that or you and me, that whole duality that comes into existence. But there is, in some ways, an amazement with life itself. An amazement that life happens at all. You know, when we're not wanting and controlling and manipulating, life still goes on in all of its <sighs> wonderful ways and not so wonderful ways. We say the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Life still goes on. And we can rest into and feel such a sense of awe, such a sense of amazement at this great mystery that we find ourselves in, this predicament that we find ourselves in, even in that place of stillness. Breath happens, the sun rises and sets, birds sing, babies are born, people die, there are wars, it all goes on seems like such a mystery that it happens. There's a Zen poem, haiku, a three-lined poem. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. The grass keeps growing and we have to keep mowing. <laughs> Things to do. 
So can we keep quiet for an instant? Just for an instant, quiet enough to know the current of our true being running through. When the wanting quiets down, And just for even an instant, we say, okay, I'll just be with this. I don't like it, don't want it, I hate it, but I'll be with it. (laughs) And something in that already gets released. I'll just be with this. And see what happens. See what unfolds from there. We begin to touch something within ourselves, that current of our true being. And when we touch it, we find that this true being or this current not only pulses through our own being, but it's the same current that's pulsating through all of life. Pulsating through you and me, the trees, the birds, the leaves, the grass, the insects no difference. This is a poem from 11th century Chinese poet and artist Su Tung Piao. The roaring waterfall is the Buddha's golden mouth. The mountains in the distance are his pure luminous body. How many thousands of poems have flowed through me tonight, and tomorrow I won't be able to repeat even one word. Resting back into the silence where words don't need to go, just a recognition of life itself pulsing through us in whatever form whatever manifestation. This is what we're being asked here. And in some ways, it doesn't even matter how many times you can actually rest into the breathing or how long you're able to stay with the breath. But the silence that's here with us it has a way of permeating everything itself without us really doing much of anything. Just by being in the conditions itself, by putting in your time, putting in your efforts, something happens. Something informs consciousness. And something begins to work. Something begins to shift. There's a power, there's a magic here. So let's continue our practice. Thank you. Let's sit quietly for just a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.